Welcome to ASHTA Resource Q&A. We're taking time to discuss construction materials testing and inspection with people in the know. From exploring testing problems and solutions to laboratory best practices and quality management, we're covering topics important to you. Now, here's our host, Brian Johnson. Today on the podcast, we've got a few guests from the ASHTO accreditation program. I've got Roxanne Baker, Joe Williams, and Trudy Eckstein all on the line, along with our producer, Kim Swanson. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Hello. Good hey, morning. Brian. So I, I had thought about this episode for a little while. I was going to just record us having an, a regular ASHTO accreditation program meeting, but I thought that might be a little too crazy. Uh, so what we're going to do today is we're going to ask some of the quality analysts what the most common questions are that they get from their customers and potential customers uh, and provide the answers afterward. So we're going to go around the horn here and I'm going to start with Joe Williams. Joe, what is one of the most common questions you get from customers? Yeah, thanks, Brian. Uh I'd say I had to think about this for a little while, and one of the most common questions I get is, what do I do for, as the lab if I get a low proficiency sample score? And what I mean is not, not consecutive low scores that would result in a suspension of the accreditation. We have, we have pol a policy on that that you can reference on our website. I just mean one low score for one of the samples in a single sample round. And really the answer that to that question is you know you tell me because <laughs> that doesn't sound very helpful joe it's it's it, it it isn't it isn't um because really every lab in their quality manual that they, they're required to have a corrective action section you know what what do i do for corrective actions when when something goes wrong and, and proficiency sample testing falls into that area of corrective actions so if you don't, if your laboratory doesn't have a robust procedure on what to do, it, it might be worth it to take a look at that procedure, think think about what you need to do, and then and then follow up and maybe revise your procedure. Now to to give a more, you know, thorough answer on our end, what what needs to occur is you do need to perform an investigation into that low score, a zero or one or a two, and. Uh, kind of go through your data go through you know interview the technician who performed and entered the data and see if you can find anything that went wrong and perform any corrective actions um and sometimes it's nothing went wrong sometimes you 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 can't figure it out and you're just like well we, we got a low score this time we're not really sure why and, and that's okay too but what you want to make sure to do is document that you want to document that investigation uh, you know, what findings that investigation produced, what corrective actions the laboratory has taken, and you want to keep that on file, again, per your quality, manu quality man management systems uh, records retention policy, because what ASHTER Resource and CCRL will do during their visits is they'll want to look at those records. You know, they they'll review your proficiency sample ratings before coming out for the visit or remotely for the visit as we're doing right now and that they will look for those records of corrective actions for low proficiency sample scores even if there was no suspension that occurred so that's that that's my frequently asked question the first of what i guess will be a few that will go around here for 
Well, I have a follow-up question for you, uh, kind sure. of a splinter off that one. How many of these questions are actually technical in nature? So if somebody says, uh, I, see, I received low ratings on a sample, uh, what do you think could go wrong with the specific gravity of asphalt mixtures? Or do they get very uh, into the details of the test method that they're, they specifically receive the low rating on? Not many do. Um, sometimes if there's a suspension, and then a, a continued suspension or revocation of the test method, method, then at that point it gets a little bit more technical. But as far as just a single low rating that isn't causing any kind of accreditation impact, usually the question is just, you know, what do I need to do with this? Is it, Do I need to submit anything to you? Do you need to see this corrective action now? And, and the answer is no, we don't need to see that documentation. The, the quality analysts don't need to, but they need to keep it on file for their well, one for one for for their own, you know, quality and uh, and uh, you know, keeping up with their quality management system, and also that documentation will be reviewed during on-site assessments. All right, fair enough, Roxanne. What do people call you most about? People call me most about um, for their inspection or assessment reports with CCRL or with Ashto Resource. Uh, it's our policy that they get 60 days initially to respond. And the most frequent contact I get is them asking, hey, we're not going to be able to resolve everything by the 60-day due date. Can I have an extension? Um, extensions aren't something that we really do. What will happen is you know, your quality analyst will tell you, you need to submit a plan of action for your remaining findings. So if you know you're not going to be able to completely resolve it by 60 days, send us your plan of action. What are you doing? Like, has that gone out to get calibrated? Like, what what's your plan of action for fixing it? And then we will process the file if everything has that plan of action to do a follow-up 30-day file. Um, again, this isn't an extension. This is, hey, we see that you're working on resolving your your remaining nonconformity, so we're giving you that may continue for that 30 days. That's but, right. Yeah, and that's the whole design of that system. So when we switched from 90 to the 60-30 thing, it was intended to be a 60-30, not a 60 period, like it used to be a 90-day period. Uh, how has that change been working, Roxanne? It's very good. Like um, most, I, I want to say most all laboratories, you know, if they can't fix stuff in the initial 60 days, they get that 30 days. The reason this new system is in place is, you know, those labs that don't submit pretty much till the last day and, you know, don't have a plan of action for really fixing anything, they're the ones where it'll be an actual suspension at the end of that 60 days because they're not even trying to resolve something at that point. They're just throwing something at us and it's not fixing anything. Yeah, now how much how much do you need to see to know that there has been a good faith effort put forward and a laboratory will be able to get that extra 30 days? Yeah, so normally we like to see that you have responded to all of your nonconformities, even if it's just with the, hey, I know the there's a finding in regards to, say, this thermometer wasn't calibrated correctly. We have sent the thermometer out to get calibrated. And that is an okay 
plan of action for us to do that 30-day follow-up file because we know you're working on it. We know that process takes time with your external calibrators. So we're going to give you the 30-day follow-up because we understand that you're working towards a resolution. Okay, now what about we will send the thermometer out? That is more iffy because <laughs> if you are just saying you will do it, there is no guarantee. I mean, there's nothing we can really see or interpret that's like, are you actually going to do that? Like, a will is a very, like, fuzzy gray area language. <laughs> so we want to see something that's like, we have, or here's the invoice for sending it out, or here's the shipment confirmation, just something that shows us you've actually taken the steps forward to get that sent out and calibrated. Yeah, that's a good distinction because I, I feel like uh, when we get those questions, and I, and I get those ones too, uh, you've got the range from no response to we are thinking about doing something to we will do something to we have a plan to do something to we have done something and are waiting for somebody else to do something that needs to be done to it is done. So somewhere along that that range of actions, is that ability to get the 60 days. And I think you identified where that is pretty clearly. You will, you have to have taken action uh, more than just thought about taking action at that point. So thanks for that distinction, Roxanne. Uh, now we're going to run down to Trudy. Trudy, I, Trudy's been a senior quality analyst for quite a while. I just want to let people know. Uh, she has been with Ashto for how many years now, Trudy? Almost 33. Almost 33 years at Ashto. She's got some experience and she's gotten all sorts of questions over her time at Ashto Resource. Trudy, what is the number one question that you want to throw out there? The number one question that I do receive is along the same lines as Roxanne um, that she already spoke about, but I'm going to piggyback on hers a little bit. One of the questions that I do get asked is, how long does it take you to review my responses once I submit my responses? You know, we look at the laboratories have that 60-day time frame. And usually my goal, my personal goal, is within one week. But we do have our own policy and guidance um, for quality analysts. And that is we try to review all our files within two weeks of that submittal date. So once you submit a response, it doesn't mean I'm going to look at it the very next day. I do have other laboratories that I'm in charge of. I'm reviewing their responses as well. I have meetings and now I have a podcast. You know, so there's other things that actually keep me from reviewing your responses. But I do try to get to them as quickly as possible in case you're not going in the right direction in your response. So it can help give you helpful information of the additional documentation that I may need. And that is very helpful if the laboratory starts the process in the very beginning of the 60 days. So that gives us more time to work back and forth with each other, allowing you time to get that calibration done, allow you to, to purchase that piece of equipment that is needed instead of waiting till the very end of that process. Um, another question I do get a little bit with a piggybacking on this is, is certifications. You know, it's hard to get certifications within possibly a 60-day window if you have a technician that, that is not certified. And then you also bring in the COVID issue that we have where some certification bodies are not conducting their training as often as normal. And we will give additional time to laboratories within a reasonable amount to allow laboratories to get that certification. 
So with the 60, 30 days, we may give additional time still after that to allow you to get your technician certified as long as you're submitting a confirmation to us, showing us that the technician is signed up for that class and it may be three months out and that's fine and we understand that. And we will work with the laboratory within reason to allow you to get your staff certified. All right, thanks Trudy. I mean, I wanna change my question to you guys a little bit this time. What is one of the most challenging questions that you have gotten from a laboratory over, over the years? And I'm not going to go around to all of you on this one because I think it's probably going to take a minute or two for you to think about. Uh, but whoever comes up with the idea first, go ahead and ra raise your hand and I'll call on you uh, like we're in class. Brian, I want to throw that question at you. What's the most challenging question you've gotten? The, the most challenging questions in general that I get are ones that I can't answer. Uh, <laughs> ones that we have no control over. Uh, we, we typically are dealing with situations where there may be a certification program or, or a CCRL related question that we really can't answer and we can't provide uh, any level of satisfaction to the customer over <laughs> without basically saying, I can't help you, you have to contact this person. Those are probably the most challenging ones and those are my least favorite questions because I do, and I'm know, and I, I I'm speaking for all the quality analysts because I know we talk about this stuff all the time and we feel the same way. Uh, we are a customer service friendly organization and we want to help people out as well as we can. Uh, so it is a little frustrating for us when we can't do that. Roxanne. I have one that is along the lines of what you're talking about. Um, there are instances, you know, now that there is a new uh, policy regarding the testing temperature of a laboratory, must be between um, 65 and 80. Uh, and, you know, we run into issues in hot states like Arizona where it gets really hot in the summer. We run into issues in cold states like, you know, the northeast in the winter. Uh, especially for warehouse style laboratories where it's a very large area and you know one heater or one AC unit's not going to cut it and a lot of labs will contact us being like what do we need to fix this like tell me what to do and that's a very hard thing to do because approval and resolution for those specific findings are resolved on a case-by-case -case basis so you kind of have to show us what your facility looks like. You have to tell us what your plan is. Like, you know, if you were written up for it being too hot in Arizona in the middle of the summer, you know, what's your plan to fix that? You know, are you going to do a total revamp of the facility, get giant AC units? Um, are you going to switch around working hours for your testing staff? What's your plan? And then once we get what your plan is, we have to send it up the line. A quality analyst does not have the capability to be like, okay, that fixes that. That goes up and is approved on a case-by-case -case basis by Brian and the AASHTO administrative task group. So that's a really tough one because a lot of people just want an easy, like, tell me what to do. And unfortunately, it's one of those situations where we can't tell you. It's, it's very specific to your facility. I feel like that question gets more complicated when it's we don't know what to do and we don't actually want to do anything to resolve this uh, <laughs> because that's that's when we really can't help. 
if, if the laboratory wants to resolve room temperature, they know what they need to do. But it's there are complications. It's not it's not just they. I, I'm oversimplifying. It's not that they just don't want to, but there could be challenges with the building that they're in. They may not have control over uh, how the how the um, the warehouse area where they have their laboratory, which a lot of laboratories do. Uh, how they're able to control the temperature back there. What sort of limitations are put on them by the owner of the building. So, so there are some complications there, but there are administrative controls that are possible. Uh, we talk a lot about safety at Ashto Resource. We know about engineering controls, administrative controls, and PPE, right? So they have to kind of go through that decision process and figure out what is going to be the most effective and what is the most possible. And they, of course, they have to consider cost savings as well. Uh, so it has to be the optimal decision for them and not everybody's going to have the same solution. Uh, I don't mind that question too much when I get it because I've been through it a lot and I've had a lot of discussions with laboratories, both who like the requirement and don't like the requirement. And it is complicated when you get a laboratory that's saying, I don't understand how this affects testing. And as a former assessor, being in Arizona in the summer, it was 130 one day and Pennsylvania in the winter where it was negative 40 in the actual facilities. Like we can definitely say it affects your testing results astronomically, like negative 40. I couldn't feel my fingers. How are you supposed to test without the use of your appendages? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you definitely need those to run tests. Yeah, that's that. That's uh, I think the the detractors from that policy, uh, they like to say that it's just about comfort and it's kind of a not that critical. But I completely agree with you. I have been at laboratories where they have had serious safety problems because of lack of control of heat and humidity in their laboratory, and it's not just because people were uncomfortable. Uh, things slip out of your hands. Some of the uh, the old Marshall rammers. If any of you remember those where you pick them up and you manually compact, one slipped out of somebody's hand and crushed their hand, uh, that's that could be avoided with temperature and humidity control in a laboratory. There have been other issues too. I won't get too into that because then we go down a whole episode about laboratory temperature control, which we're kind of well on our way to that. So let's let's get off that topic now. Uh, Trudy, I think you had you you lit up. You had an idea. What do, what do you think? One of the questions I receive a lot of times that I kind of cringe a little bit when I get that question was, or is, how much does my accreditation going to cost? And it is very easy to determine, but it's not a simple number that I can throw out and say $5,000. It depends on a lot of different things. And it's easy to break it down systematic. And first you look at how much your assessment's going to cost. So I work with the, with the laboratory to figure out what type of assessment they're going to get, whether it's resource, CCRL, what type of scopes and test methods, so we can get a breakdown with that. Then we get a breakdown of what proficiency samples they need to be enrolled in for ASHTO resource or CCRL. And then we have our programmatic ASHTO accreditation fees that happens every year for a laboratory. There's a basic fee, a standard fee for each test method the laboratory is accredited for. So that's an annual fee. But when you're talking about assessments, that's more of a every two to two and a half year fee. Proficiency samples are every year. So it is possible to slowly break down the cost of a laboratory's accreditation and to be able to give that to a laboratory accurately. 
Um, but it is something that takes some time to work with and break it down for the laboratory. So it's not just an easy question where I can just say it's $5,000 because it totally depends for a laboratory based on their scope of testing. Um, but that is a question that I find difficult sometimes, but it is an answer that we can get to the laboratory. Yeah, and that's something that we're actually working on with a new, we're, we're developing a new system for not just uh, database management, but some new online tools. And we really want to get some sort of fee estimator built into that system so that we can get an easier answer for people uh, because it is complicated. And it even when you get all the information from them, it does take time to figure it all out. Uh, like you said, Joe, what did you come up with? One of the challenging questions I get is, uh, what is the difference between an annual review and the pre-assessment documentation that needs to be submitted? And, and usually this question comes from a laboratory whose annual review documentation is due the same time or within a month or so of their pre-assessment documentation. And what usually happens is one or the other doesn't get submitted because the laboratory believes that it's the same thing because some of the documentation does overlap like, like the biographical sketches and the, uh, the organizational chart. Really the biggest difference is certification review. What, what the assessor is doing with the pre-assessment documentation is reviewing certifications to make sure that the personnel is certified for whatever ASTM quality standards they have. So 1077, 3666, uh, 3740, E329. That documentation is not reviewed during the annual review. We used to do it. The quality analysts used to handle it in those files, but we don't anymore. And really the reason for that is because the assessors being on site under normal circumstances tend to have a better idea of who's doing what as far as testing goes. Whereas if we're just reviewing that, uh, you know, on a computer screen, it's hard for us to actually see what's going on. Now that the annual review is just that it's an annual, you know, checkup. Uh, what the quality analyst does with that documentation is uh, we check to make sure the laboratories in the same location that they're keeping up with both their CCRL and resource assessments. Uh, that the management is appropriate for whatever accreditations they have or if they need any kind of uh, approvals that we need to handle. Uh, we check their accreditation and make sure that everything looks good there. If, there are, they're, if they're uh, listing as any suspensions, we make sure that those suspensions are valid and are being followed up on, things like that. So it's, it's just something to keep in mind that if those two items that the lab has to that a laboratory has to handle are coming due at the same time both of them do need to be handled separately um the the information it can be shared between uh the accreditation program and the assessment staff but it's typically not we're we're looking in one place and they're looking in another place so it is important to make sure that all that documentation gets submitted to where it needs to go yeah, and I'd also say that 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 is not one one thing that people wonder about is is this a situation where uh, the accreditation program is so separate from the assessment program that they're not communicating? Uh, that is not the conclusion that should be drawn from that. We're actually asking mostly different questions in those two activities, other than the org chart and the the bio of the technical manager. I think those are about the same. But otherwise, we're looking at different things. And really, the annual review form takes about five to 10 minutes to, to submit if you're the laboratory in, in most cases, unless you have some unusual situation. Uh, but it is an, 
really an integral part of the accreditation process because that allows us a chance to make sure everything is up to date with the laboratory. Uh, so we will continue to do it. And, you know, I mentioned the future developments of our system. And one of the things we want to get to is a point where we can avoid any redundancies uh, like the redundancies that exist between those forms. I think we're going to have a way that might improve the process a little bit where we'll have a, an ongoing document repository so that if somebody already submitted something like an org chart recently, then that'll be viewable and accessible by the quality analyst. So could avoid some of those confusing situations, but that certainly is confusing right now. Uh, <laughs> Roxanne? I thought of one that I haven't gotten for a while, thankfully, but it's always very challenging. And it's when a lab contacts us and says, what do I need to be accredited for? Or do I need to be accredited for this? And the answer for our perspective is, we don't know. Your accreditation is based off what you need to do the work that you're doing. So if your clients want you to be accredited for that, then that's what you need to be accredited for. But we don't have a book saying like, your soils lab, this is what you need. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And especially for the additional quality standards, again, R18 is the basis of accreditation. So everybody needs R18 to be accredited. But for all the additional stuff, C1077, D3666, E329, any of that, you don't have to have that unless you are working on a project that requires it. If you have it and you're just like, it's too hard to keep up with these requirements or these certifications, do I need this to be accredited? The answer is no. You only need it if your clients tell you that they need that in order for you to work on that project. Right, so what in that case, what should they do? They should contact their clients. <laughs> they should read their project contracts, whatever it basically says that they need to have, we can help you get that. You know, you get assessed for it, you get reviewed for it. Um, but if you're asking us what you need, the answer unfortunately is gonna be, I don't know, because <laughs> I don't know what projects or who you work for or any of that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's frustrating because again, you want to help them out and you want to you want to give them a, a good answer. But in those cases, you really can't because you don't know who their clients are. Uh, now, over the years, I will say we have developed relationships with other specifying agencies. You know, in addition to the DOTs, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers, some of the building departments throughout the country, and some of the larger cities uh, to at least understand their requirements a little bit more and. Uh, have some sort of interaction when there are questions, but those are those are really the people that laboratories need to reach out to. They know they need to get accredited. There must have been some reason, so it's good to reach out and get all those specific details. Uh, and we'll try to help them the best way we can, but sometimes we just don't have those answers. Uh, so that, that's a really good one, Roxanne. Thanks for bringing that up. I'm going to say as well, though, there's some, are there not, I could be wrong, um, things that are prerequisites know that you have to be accredited for X, Y, and Z in order to be accredited for A, B, and C or something like that. Is there not some prerequisites in certain cases? Yes. So if a lab is saying, hey, I need to get accredited for D2487, for example, that is classification of soils. You can't actually do that method without running the Adderberg tests or the sieving sufficiency tests. So in those cases, you have to be accredited for the prerequisite methods. 
But if you're asking me if you need to be accredited for D2487, my answer is going to be, I don't know. <laughs> I can help you if it's a prerequisite method, but I can't help you overall determine what your laboratory needs to be accredited for. Trudy, what is the most challenging question you get? Sometimes some of the challenging questions can be technical in nature for me. There are so many test methods that we accredit laboratories for. It's not possible for quality analysts to have off the top of their head every single test method and the requirements for that test method. So sometimes that is hard for me and I might just have to look at the standard just like the laboratory does and read the standard or I go to our assessor worksheets which is like a little cheat sheet for me sometimes to see what the requirements are and what we're looking for. Um, so sometimes that's uh, hard for me because I want to be able to give you that answer right away, but I might just have to say, let me get back to you. Let me do a little research on my own. Um, and if I have trouble, I'll ask another coworker because they might have a specialty in the nuke gauge test method or something like that. So it's really hard for the quality analyst to have technical knowledge in all the test methods from ASHTO resource scope, including into the CCRL scope with concrete and masonry and chemical tests. But we will try to help you and as fast as we can, and we love to get the correct answers and the information to you as quick as possible. Yeah, and I, I've got a follow-up to that one. I, I saw this question the other day come in, and I thought, it. I mean, it was it's an impossible question to provide an answer to, but I thought it was kind of interesting. The person wanted to know what research we have done to validate the steps in a certain procedure. Joe, if if somebody asked you that, uh, what would you say? Well, as far as what Astro Resource has done, uh, the, the, the answer is nothing. Um, and why not? Why aren't you doing that? We don't do anything. We are, we are sort of enforcers of the standards. But as far as on the Astro and the ASTM side, those standards are... Uh, peer-reviewed and vetted by, uh, you know, people in the industry and, you know, as test methods are then utilized, changes or revisions can be made to those standards basically at any time. There are processes that needed that need to be followed. Some of our data from the proficiency sample program is used in those standards to help uh, establish precision estimates. But as far as what we as Astro Resource does to validate those procedures, it, it essentially nothing. Okay, Kim, we're gonna have to go back and scrub some of that. Joe, <laughs> Joe repeatedly keeps saying that we're doing nothing. Okay. I don't like I, I don't like I was just about that. to say, I was <laughs> like, I'm like, that seems like a really straightforward answer, Brian. I don't know why that's complicated for you. That seems yeah, like a straightforward answer. Well, well, what, what's what's challenging for me about that is uh, it, it, it people don't really understand what our role is in the whole process, right? Because it, it is confusing, admittedly confusing, because yes, we do participate in standards development activities. Not every single employee does, uh, but AASHTO Resource as a whole participates in, sta participates in standards development. AASHTO publishes standards. Uh, the people who vote on those standards are not ASHTO employees, though those are the state DOTs, but not a lot of people understand that. Uh, some of us are also involved in ASTM standards development pretty heavily, uh, so that muddies the water as well. Now, back to the precision estimate thing that Joe was talking about. 
I did want to say it is really hard to figure out where some of those pre precision and bias statements uh, come from. Uh, I know that my own work in standards development, I have looked back to try to find, okay, which proficiency samples did those numbers come from or which NCHRP report did those numbers come from? Sometimes you can't find that. Those statements are not clearly defined and they're, they're not clearly traceable back to a report sometimes. I'd say more often than not, that's the case. And I, I believe that both ASHTO and ASTM realize that that is a problem. And it seems like when they do the work now, uh, you know, ASTM's got pretty dedicated to putting together interlaboratory studies and they're trying to document that and reference them properly. And that's a great step in standards development. Uh, but if you look back at some older standards, you're not going to find that. So it is it is pretty tough. And in ASHTO Resource, certainly uh, we, we don't have uh, a bunch of testing laboratories in our building where we're, we're constantly working on these things. That's strictly not our role. There are times we help out, but it's that's not what we do uh, for the most part. So that, that was a good one. Roxanne. Yeah, I'd just like to add to that, piggyback off that, like we do, when we, you know, as we are the enforcers of the standards, there are some times that, you know, labs bring to our attention or we even realize that certain areas could be approved upon in certain standards. And we do try and work with um, the ASHTO and ASTM standard writers and committees to see if those revisions can be made or updates. But again, this is, large committees making these overall decisions and edits. So a lot of the guidance I like to give to labs is if you are talking about an ASTM standard, enroll in ASTM, sign up, you have a voice, you can use it. Go to the committee meeting um, about that covers that specific standard you're talking about. Propose that change yourself because you can, you have the power. For an ASHTO standard, I would say, bring it up with your state DOT, point it out, um, have them bring it up at the ASHTO meetings and committee meetings about those standards. Like you have a voice as a testing laboratory, utilize it. Like we try and do as much as we can, but again, in, we might not be able to get to everything. Yeah, I, and I, I'll go one step further. If, if somebody is a little shy about uh, going into the standards development ring, uh, particularly within ASTM, if they go, you know, if they're nervous about attending a meeting or if they're not sure about how to submit uh, a negative or a comment and they, they're, they're just a little worried about it, uh, th that's the kind of help that, that you can reach out to us for too because we have participated in it and we do want to encourage more. You know, Roxanne, I thought it was great how you're encouraging people to participate Sometimes you just need somebody to kind of shepherd you through the first time when you go through uh, some new professional development activity. And it, it's not our responsibility to do it, but we do want to help you. If there are people, you know, especially if you're in person and you see one of us there, let us talk to you about it. You know, we can we can introduce you to people. Uh, we can help you get used to the process a little bit because we the more people that get engaged, the better the standards end up being. Uh, the less confusing the wording is and the better everybody uh, handles things. It makes the less questions there are about the language in a, a standard, uh, the less decisions we have to make that could go either way. And we, anytime you have any ambiguous statements, you're going to have people who aren't really happy with 
with how it's being interpreted. So you kind of want to avoid those situations. All right, so we had some good discussion today. Thank you so much to Joe Williams, Roxanne Baker, and Trudy Eckstein for throwing uh, or volunteering your time, which Trudy mentioned she should have been using to review corrective actions. But I think you can spare this time to, to broadcast these frequently asked questions that you get from customers. So thank you guys for your time. And you can reach out to any of us anytime with questions. Uh, but I think it's good for people to hear sort of the, the big ones that come out. So thanks again, and thank you for listening to Ashto Resource Q&A. Thanks for listening to Ashto Resource Q&A. If you'd like to be a guest or just submit a question, send us an email at podcast at ashtoresource.org or call Brian at 240-436-4820. For other news and related content, check out Ashto Resource's Twitter feed or go to ashtoresource.org.